welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. So today I'm talking with um, Dr. Sarah White. Sarah started her career as a primary school teacher um, at a school which prioritised well-being and pastoral care. Um, lucky you. <laughs> I didn't realise how lucky I was at the time actually. So yeah, yeah absolutely lucky. Yeah. Amazing. So this set the stage for her career uh, with a degree in psychology, a master's in education and a doctorate in emotional intelligence. And she now works as a facilitator, a speaker, an ICF accredited coach specializing in emotional well-being and resilience. And um, Sarah works with organization, international schools and families to equip people with simple, practical uh, skills to boost their re resilience and develop their emotional well-being. So really, Sarah is a specialist of topics like emotional equity, relocation, well-being and emotional resilience. Um, and I have to say, I'm just so excited to be speaking um, to you because those words are like so close to my heart i absolutely <laughs> love them so um very very warm welcome sarah um you know and thanks for coming to talk to us today thank you i'm really excited as well it's always amazing having a group of people who also value resilience and well-being and there's just amazing energy that comes so i'm looking forward to it as well Amazing. So um, we've obviously I've given a bit of a, an overview of, of your career and I at the beginning I sort of said, you know, obviously, wow, lucky you that you had a school um, that prioritised well-being and pastoral care. Can you can you talk to us about that? What what was that like? And was it, did you have any experiences in the past of schools who didn't prioritise, um, you know, well-being in that way? Um, I'll answer your second question first, which is no. I've always worked at worked at two schools in my career as a teacher. Both have been very good on the well-being and pastoral care side of things. And I don't know whether that's luck or whether it's really they're the schools that I was drawn to work at. Maybe a little bit of both, because you, you never really know what a school's like until you start working there. Um, but yeah, certainly my first school was, I'm from Newcastle in the northeast of England. So it was, it was in Gateshead. It was in a, quite a tough area, I would say. Lots of families working very hard on minimum wage jobs. Some of them working two jobs. Um, you know, lots of issues I would say with children lots of behavior challenges lots of various um yeah you know kind of issues that we had outside agencies involved with without getting into it too much but something I had at the time always said was you know we we manage we manage things well and what he meant by that was you know the teachers really care about these children we really did care about them. They weren't the easiest children because I think some of them had probably seen and experienced things that 
I would ne I've never experienced as an adult and would hope never to experience, you know, just difficult things at home, challenges in their environment. But in coming to school, they had a really safe space and there was high expectations of behaviour. There were, you know, certainly very clear consequences to, to behaviour, purely from a safety point of view. I've been reading a lot about coercion and compliance and behaviour and I'm really interested in finding out more about that as a sideline because honestly for us it was a safety thing. You can't have children throwing chairs around. It's not safe for anybody. So yeah, we, we really did um, spend a lot of time on that. Not, not even necessarily a talk curriculum, just in the way we interacted with students, in, in what we did, in the way we dealt with things. And I think there were a lot of children who potentially had huge behaviour issues, but because they were so well looked after and so well cared for, that those were minimised, you know, when it meant that they could actually get on with learning. And yeah, and then I moved to, to Singapore, to a British international school here, and it was completely different. Um, and initially I was like, oh, you know, it's really easy here. Like the children, they're all, parents are really supportive. And they have these, you know, generally if you're living internationally, you, you, you have a certain job level and a certain level of education. And so you value that for your children and you have the resources to be able to support them. But what's interesting is then starting to read for my doctorate, I realized that it wasn't all easy. It was different challenges and a very different context. So that was a real lesson to me. Not, you know, we all do it, right? We all judge on, on superficial appearances. That was a real lesson for me to dig a little bit deeper and, you know, just get to know what was actually happening there. And certainly the challenges around mobility and transition, um, you know, children leaving, children arriving, like families who, like parents worked away, going to visit grandparents in the summer, coming back, not having that sense of being rooted in place. I mean, I'd come from a school where that basically everyone in the area had gone to the school. Their children were at the school, their parents had gone there, their grandparents had gone there. You know, it was really unusual to get any new students. So a completely different experience, but both really valuable, I would say. Yeah, amazing. So, it, I, I find that really fascinating because I think I agree with you. I think it's so easy to to look in and just assume that, you know, if the, those parents are perfect and that they're providing their children with everything they need for their emotional intelligence and, you know, to, to grow and develop well. Um, and that's not always the case. And, and, you know, before we started the podcast, we were talking about, the fact that maybe what's missing in a lot of conversations around education is that the context. Mm -hmm. So what what the context um, does to uh, individuals um, and how in one one context one person might flourish more than another. So do you want to talk um, to that a little bit about the importance of, of that contextual sort of uh, positioning? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because I mean, my my experience, I can only speak to my experience, um, but certainly there were there were similarities between the two contexts, which was generally most parents want to do everything they can to support their child, but when it comes to resilience and well-being and emotional intelligence, 
they don't necessarily know what that is. And certainly, you know, speaking as a teacher, and I don't know if it's changed now, but it certainly wasn't the case when I was training, or so, you know, the immediate years after that, and colleagues that I've worked with, as a teacher, you're not really getting specifically trained in resilience, in well-being, um, you know, that proactive, how do you teach friendship skills, and how do you teach conflict resolution, and it's so important. Because so many teachers are like, oh, it just gets in the way, it gets in the way of the work. And I'm like, it is the work. <laughs> it doesn't matter what your context is. I think your context really dictates where you need to pay attention, really. That, you know, that's, that's it. Is it that you've got a lot of children who are leaving and you've got children grappling with grief and losing friends? Or is it that you have children who are coming to school who haven't had any breakfast? And it's you know, and they're, they're, they can't concentrate because they haven't eaten and they don't feel safe at home. So it's, it really is important to I think, get to grips with that context and understand what children need for resilience and for well-being in that context. And always say there's always this assumption that children are resilient. I hear it, I hear it pretty much every webinar or workshop that I do. Oh, but it's okay because children are resilient. And I don't know where this has come from. <laughs> I genuinely don't know because obviously there's some level of resilience naturally for some people but others like you say need more careful nourishing and looking after to be able to be resilient and they need to be equipped with more specific skills to practice that resilience um, and you have to also look at what children are experiencing you know if they're experiencing challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge they don't just snap back from that like nothing's happened. Uh, that has yeah. an impact on them. It has an impact on their development. It has an impact on concentration. It has an impact on how they interact with everybody around them. So I would love for people to stop assuming children are resilient. Um, I think that's quite a dangerous assumption to go in with because then as an educator, you're like, oh, but they're already there. I don't need to do anything because they're naturally already in that place. You'd never say, oh, that child naturally is brilliant and knows everything about fractions. You know, okay, so they might have a really good starting point, but there's still improvements to be made. They might start making mistakes in an area. How can we support them to get through that? So I do feel with a lot of the, the well-being, the resilience, it is so important to treat children as individuals and, you know, think about parents as well. Like I said, most parents are really keen to support their children in any way they can. It's just knowing how to do that. Yes, they might not know how to. And I love that because I always say, so in, in the books I've written, you know, I always say there's no silver bullet. If you're looking for that one size fits all, that answer where you just take everybody and tar them with the same brush, then you're barking up the wrong tree. There isn't a, that one size fits all because we're all individuals. And so therefore, you know, you were talking about individuals. I'm, I'm currently researching for my third book and I'm interviewing a lot of parents and teachers. And what I'm hearing a lot is that sort of in education. So we talk about education as, you know, this thing. But what I always challenge people because I'm a linguist and just say, what do you mean by education? Because what's behind education is a set of people of individuals you know young people teachers head teachers you know whatever and it sometimes it's from what i'm hearing at the moment the difference is made by one individual in particular who's just 
like there for the young person and just makes a difference so how how would how do, I mean, do you agree with that do you think it resonates with the work you're doing as well yeah so it's interesting as you were you were sharing about your books that made me think about the conclusions i drew from my doctorate so my doctorate was all around using an emotional intelligence intervention to support third culture kids who are the children who grew up internationally and they're between several cultures and there's that high level of mobility and challenge with that but one of the key findings is that you can't just use an intervention in isolation and go oh that's it that's it we've done well-being for the week now it's after tuesday <laughs> we don't need to do any more that whole concept of a systemic whole is absolutely vital and it is individuals and it's how you like like i said before it's how you speak to children it's how you model that and how you expect children to speak to one another it's in how you deal with children who are tumbling in at the end of break time saying someone, someone hit me in the face and someone took my football and you know do, are you sorting that out are you leading them through the process of resolving that conflict there's so many bits and pieces to, to do it you know, and there are so many good interventions out there things like circle time which has been around forever which is fantastic but people tend to think of it as hey, well we do we use it to solve problems it's not for that it is designed to develop speaking and listening and empathy and there is so much potential there but people are like oh no we just use it to talk about when things have gone wrong and again it's I think it's just so important to always, as a teacher, have one eye on that proactive well-being in your classroom. Um, you know, you can take a nap and do mindfulness every day, or you can, you know, you can do circle time once a week. But if in the rest of the time, well-being isn't front and centre, then it doesn't really stand up. You know, it's like, oh, well, this is our 10 minutes to be mindful, but we're not going to be mindful for the rest of the day. Like, hurry up and get on with it. So it just, I don't know, I think education is why teachers have got so much to do in a classroom, so yeah. much. I've been a teacher, I still teach, and you know, I cover teachers when they're off, and it's, it, it's a lot. And then to start saying to teachers, oh, but you're going to throw in well-being as well. It's, I think sometimes, well, a lot of the time in education, we're just adding in more and more and more things. And a lot of teachers say, well, oh, but it's just one more thing. It's another thing to do. And actually, I don't agree with that. I don't think it is another thing to do. I think it's really very much in your approach and the way you organise, you know, even groupings in your classroom, the way you encourage children to work together, how are you teaching collaboration skills? And it's so woven into everything you do as part of that systemic whole that, yeah, you know what, mindfulness, all these things, they are fantastic. And there's a lot of evidence to prove that they do have a big impact on children's resilience and children's well-being. But you can't just pick and choose a couple of apps and go, right, tick, done. It's, right. not, it's not like spelling, <laughs> where you're yeah. like, right, an hour of spelling every week and, and that yeah. then gets it off. It's, it's such an ongoing thing and it, it's so important to be responsive to challenges that are happening. At the mo in the moment of when they're happening. I do think for that to happen, teachers also need to think about their own well-being because it's, you know, putting children front and centre, but when you're exhausted and burnt out, particularly at the minute, it's 
so many of my friends over the last few months, parents think we're not doing anything, but we're working about twice as hard as we were before, which is no joke when you know how many hours the teachers generally work to suddenly shift to online learning and remote learning and you know, suddenly have to do a whole different learning model and then think about, well, actually now well-being's become even more important. How do we possibly do that when we're teaching remotely? Yeah, I think teacher well-being as well is is starting to become much more of an area of research and it can't really happen quickly enough, I think, yeah. because part of it is slowing down and doing less. And certainly my experience as a teacher has been like, nothing's ever taken out, it's always added in. <laughs> you do this and just add this in and just add this yeah. in. Just one yeah. more thing. So just one more thing just piles it all on. So I think that there's a, there's a lot to it, but for me, it's that systemical. It's how are you approaching your class, your week, your month, your term as a whole, and what's your approach to that in terms of resilience and well-being. Um, yeah. <laughs> the music to my ears, because I talk about, about, you know, flourishing education being a system and that you can't tweak it like an engine. So you can't just sort of simply give well-being or focus on the well-being of students if the, you know, I, I, I use the analogy of pouring from an empty cup. You can't pour from an empty cup. If your cup's empty, it's empty. And um, and I think as educators, we, we like to give to others. We like to sort of, you know, share. Um, and we're not always good at saying, you know what, my cup is is, is completely empty. Um, so recently, because we're moving from a blended learning where I work, I have found myself getting more and more stressed. And, you know, I'm lucky because I've got tools that I, I practice mindfulness that so I know what to do. But I'm still, I'm still struggling you know with all of it so I agree with you that you know teachers and you know I've got so much respect for all of my colleagues but I you know I think also the other thing that really resonates with what you were saying is I've, I've just recently published an article on the importance of embedding well-being in the curriculum and this project we did which was unfortunately curtailed because of COVID um, but really shows how you know for me it's not about oh go and do yoga or go, do, go and do mindfulness and then you'll be fine you know it's not about the doing for me it's about the being so it becomes like they say in Papua New Guinea you know anything is a rumor until it's in the muscles so do you actually embody that sort of well-being are you a, a model for for the young people um because that that makes people curious. That makes them want to know more. Mm. Is that your your experience as well in terms of you know obviously the resilience and the well being of staff and and people you work with? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting and it works the other way around as well. Like certainly, I have never really done any mindfulness before we brought it into school, and then I saw the benefits of doing it because I was doing it with my class. I was like, oh, this is actually really nice. So there, there are benefits to, to both sides, I think. Um, yeah, yeah but you, like you say, like embedding that well-being and having it as part of your system and the way you do things, it's so important. Um, mm. But I think in education generally, there are so many initiatives and everything changes all the time. And it's like, well, we have to make room for things and it feels like there isn't time for well-being. And I think that's a that's a 
a big issue as well and something that I often say to schools when I'm and teachers when I'm working with them is actually by being proactive about well-being by prioritizing it what you're actually doing is you're giving children coping skills so they start to be able to sort out problems by themselves they know when they need to come to you for some help but it also means that you're catching things very early on um, like friendship problems for example you know generally there's always some kind of friendship kerfuffle <laughs> between between children but if you're catching that early on and you're starting to support them and putting things into place it doesn't then escalate into a huge issue that then takes more time so although it might feel like oh, it takes a lot more time i think everything does until it becomes automatic and the way you do things there's actually a lot of benefit in putting well-being front and center in terms of the time it saves you <laughs> as a teacher and i know teachers are always concerned with time of course the other benefit to that is that it's really promoting children's well-being because it's not letting things get to the point where they're so difficult that you're having to get external help and external resources in to support with that you know and of course there are there are exceptions to that and i think i know there was a huge conversation in the uk around what well, teachers are not mental health practitioners and i totally agree with that and nor should they be you know there are plenty of very very competent qualified yeah. health practitioners who specialize in that area but i do think it's important for teachers to realize where their role what their role can encompass and what they can practically do which is a lot of the, the proactivity around resilience and around well-being um, and then where children need additional support and then also who to send them to you know that, that i think that's really the role of a teacher is to say okay so i've got a child who's got quite severe anxiety that's that's not my area of expertise um, and recognizing that yeah. they need additional support yeah. from somebody else you know yeah yeah, yeah. And I think um, and this is why I, I wrote my first book is because of the language. So I think in, in, in England, in where I live, um, we use the word mental health when we mean mental ill health, but we don't say that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's all a mishmash and people sort of talk about, you know, I'm depressed or I'm, I, you know, uh, I'm anxious. Mm -hmm. But is that because you've got a, a, a you know, mental health Problem, a real problem, you know, always is just what a kutcher in Canada calls a bad hair day, bad hair week, or bad hair month, mm -hmm. and that's different. There is a difference. You know, I grew up with a mother who was clinically depressed, mm -hmm. and being clinically depressed is such a, you know, it, it can't, you can't perform, you can't do anything, and I think it's that clarity around the language also that's really important. We've, we've, we've touched on the parents, on the teachers and the young people, but in that also in the equation is the parents, of mm. course. Um, so I, I love, you know, what you've said about the, you know, sort of enabling young people, giving them the skills so that they can, you know, start from a young age. Because I work in HE and obviously we are at the end of an education system. And sometimes I just feel like I'm firefighting because <laughs> it's, it, uh, you know, you're trying to put the, the fire out, but actually it's of years and years of, you know, learned behaviors, like you were saying, and coping strategies. Mm -hmm. um, because we all find ways of coping with our emotions in, in a certain way. And sometimes those strategies are not very positive. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, 
so so do you i mean could you a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are parents so mm. what advice would you give them uh, around support for their children and you know helping them with the resilience and the, and the well-being yeah certainly i think it's definitely a tendency at the minute for parents to want to protect their children from harm and of course physical harm but also the psychological harm you know all of a sudden it seems like it's not okay to be experiencing any kind of negative emotion and I do I understand that I mean I, I became a parent myself and I never fully understood it until I had my own child and I was like oh, I would do anything to make sure she's all right but I think that quote of happiness as a byproduct is really vital to remember because what's happening if you know when it's normal for us to all experience a range of emotions it's really normal for that to happen and there's a shift towards this kind of toxic positivity where rather than talking about how you feel so okay like example we've got some some children in the, the playgrounds you know someone said oh you can't play football you're not on our team you rubbish at this off you go so you've got someone who's very upset now You've got two ways of dealing with that, to my mind. One is you address the feelings first, which is it's upsetting when someone's not kind to you. And how are you feeling about that? And tell, talk me through that. And why, you know, not, not why you think you feel that way, but um, because then they have to try and justify it and children don't always know. But just talk me through how you feel right now. And it's normal to feel like that. And that's okay. And then that allows them to calm down and actually move through and then start thinking about solutions. And it's really important for children to start coming up with solutions themselves because you're actually getting that chance to exercise that executive function part of the brain. So if they're never making their own decisions about how to put things right or what to do or how to move forwards, they're not exercising that muscle. So by the time they reach you guys in HE, um, they, they're not as well practiced with that. And if you think the cortex isn't fully developed until you're 25, that's a lot of time to practice that decision-making. So uh, what I would say to parents is recognize those uncomfortable feelings as a very, very normal part of growing up and look at them as a learning opportunity. You know, you've got an opportunity to teach your child how to deal with those in a way that's really constructive by paying attention to the feeling, by understanding that it's normal, thinking about the information behind it, and then you're in a position to make a decision about, well, what do you want to do? And sometimes you don't want to do anything. Sometimes taking no action is a decision, and that's fine. And other times it's a different decision. Where there's a problem is either where parents want to rush in and fix it for children, so children are getting the chance to exercise those muscles themselves or where we go down the path of, I think some people have misunderstood the concept of positive psychology and it's, we have to be positive at all costs at all times. And then you're really getting into this toxic positivity where what that's actually doing is say, oh, well, cheer up. You've got other friends. There's plenty of other things you can do. You don't need to play football. Well, that's not, that I can see like having head in hands. Um, that's, not, that's not dealing with it. Um, and in fact, what it's doing is minimizing those feelings and invalidating those feelings. Actually, we feel what we feel and that's completely normal. And it's actually counterproductive because those feelings are still gonna come out one way or another. So it's better to process them, talk through them and actually you know, walk through that process rather than try and squash them down, ignore them, be positive about it. 
And that's something that I always have a whole you know, process for teaching this to parents on webinars and workshops. And it's something that is always the comment, I wish I'd known about this sooner. Yeah. I wish I'd known about this earlier. Yeah. So actually, it takes a lot less time takes a lot less energy the onus is on the child then to do some problem solving and to think about it but it's hard to do that as a parent it's hard to stand back and be hands off and let children take the lead on that and I think some parents have that feeling of I'm not parenting I'm, you know, I'm not actively solving the problem and I think it's just looking at okay so you've got the choice of actively solving a short-term problem or stepping back a little bit, giving them some space with their feelings, and then what you're doing is equipping them with coping strategies, which long-term are really, really gonna benefit them. So I think that's that's a good way to look at it as a parent, is that in the short term, okay, it might feel like it fixes it. Like teaching a child to cook, right? So if you, if you like think, right, okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut your sandwich up for you. That's a short-term solution, but what that means yeah. is not learning how to cut up a sandwich yeah. which is yeah. a life skill that everyone needs to have <laughs> it's, it's the same yeah. thing with emotion you know it's stepping back and letting them work through it and it is a little bit messy and they are going to make mistakes but emotions are messy they're not straightforward and that's okay it's all right to sit with that and to be a bit uncomfortable that's okay so two things came up when you were saying that the first one is, do you think it's a cultural thing? So being French, I think I grew up in a culture that allows for emotions much more. So actually, I think um, I, I feel my anger and I allow my anger, for example, because I see it as this is you've you've stepped too far now those are my boundaries and i'm not okay with that so i'm actually okay expressing my anger um and 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 i love the fact that you sort of talk about emotions and like encouraging our children so i've got two boys and i always say to them particularly because i think it's important for boys or men because they're mm -hmm. often taught you know don't cry like a girl or right. oh, yeah <laughs> it's so harmful it's so harmful yeah. and it's, that's a whole other podcast episode i think right there isn't it yeah, yeah. It's so do you think that so the, the first one is the cultural aspect and the second question added to that is as adults are we actually good at feeling our emotions and therefore is it not that as a parent, because I noticed that with my own children, you know, I've got 10 years of self-development behind me, so I'm getting quite good at noticing my own things going on for me. But when, when we are on autopilot and we just doing our thing and, you know, we may not notice that whatever's going on for our children and we want our children to have the best life, to do the best, etc. that triggers fear in us. And that fear will make us want to control the conditions or the other things and to then go, no, don't worry, you've got other friends or, um, or not encourage them to talk about it. Because actually we're feeling that emotion ourselves yes. and we're not maybe yeah. dealing with it. Yeah. So to answer your first question, um, there is a lot in the research, certainly between the East and the West, in terms of 
displaying emotions, which emotions are acceptable to display. What's interesting is that we seem to experience emotions in a similar way, regardless of culture. So the biological, physiological basis of emotion seems to be fairly constant with everyone. Um, although there is research now suggesting that we construct emotion as we experience it. So if you don't experience it, then you have no construction of what a particular emotion actually means. But certainly the research has been done in the past. Um, there's been a lot of work done in Japan by a man called David Matsumoto. And he talked a lot about how emotions are suppressed. It's not okay to show those emotions. So you feel them still, but you don't show them. Um, and I know certainly in Singapore, um, I often have this conversation with people on my training courses and organizations who are like, oh, but it's not okay to, to show our feelings. It's not okay to get upset or it's not okay to, um, you know, to just outwardly display those feelings. Um, so I think there's definitely a cultural element in terms of how, you know, how you're brought up and the expectations around that. So, and I think it's important to, you know, there's no right or wrong way. I think it's important to understand that every culture does it differently. Yeah. But what's helpful is to look at the research and to think about, okay, so how can this work for me in my context, given my cultural background? Because I think certainly in Singapore, you could be, you know, very much in touch with your emotions. But if you go into your office and you start screaming or crying, or it's not going to go down very well. <laughs> not going to get much sympathy or empathy from people. So I think it's just really being aware of the strategies, recognizing those emotions in yourself and still paying attention to those strategies. Yeah. So second question was about um, parents actually experiencing those emotions ourselves. Yeah. No, when we're not good at sitting with difficult feelings, we don't like it, do we? We don't like feeling anything unpleasant, shame, guilt, anything that's awful. And I think when you see your child upset, your first instinct, it's almost like a biological visceral reaction, isn't it? You just want to fix it. You want them to stop hurting yeah. and you want to fix it. And I think it's, a really good opportunity for parents to practice their own resilience in that moment because that's the temptation and I think you're you're kind of hardwired to respond in that way it's a survival thing it goes back hundreds of thousands of years and our brains haven't really evolved from that but just pay attention to that feeling and think okay right this is this is how I'm feeling let me let me just recognize that pay attention to it talk myself through that a little bit take some deep breaths <laughs> the mindfulness practices come in really helpful um yeah i think definitely just being very aware of the advantages and the disadvantages of either talking through these feelings and these experiences versus trying to fix them mm. and i think really it's a choice isn't it it's a it's a choice to make as a parent in terms of what would like the outcome to be and it's looking ahead several years into the future it's not looking at the outcome right now. It's not looking at the outcome of, well, they're not being allowed to play football right now. What is the outcome right now? Yeah, that does need to be resolved. But you're also thinking ahead. You're also thinking, well, when they're 15 and they're not going to come to me when these things happen yeah, necessarily. Exactly. And it's exactly. how am I equipping them with the coping skills to deal with that and to build our relationship and to build the trust that we have and to know that they can tell me how they feel and I will take that on board and listen to it and 
you know, validate those emotions. That's really important. I remember, I mean, my, my little one's just little, but I remember speaking to someone who, whose children are in the early 20s and she really said, you know, it's the work you put in when they're zero to 11, which really pays dividends in the teenage years. And I think, so as a primary school teacher, you've got that beautiful, and as a parent, you've got that amazing window of opportunity where you will have so many chances to exercise these skills. And it's not easy, but you know what? Parenting's not easy. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> no. it, it becomes easier when you have some strategies and some explanations behind why it helps to do things a certain way or why it helps to follow a certain strategy. But um, yeah, it's oh, certainly not judging. I think it's one of those things where everyone's doing their best. Yes. Everyone's yeah. doing their best as a parent, yeah. and it's really hard work. Yeah. Um, but certainly paying attention to feelings, yours and your children's, just validating them, sitting with them, being all right with being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. being all right with them being a bit messy, giving children the space to figure these things out really is so, so very valuable. Yeah. So if I can encourage anyone to, who's listening just to do one thing, that would be my one key thing to take away and to try. Do like amazing, and the other thing that I wanted to obviously spring on from what you just said is the other thing that you know that links to those negative emotions the vulnerability. So, a lot of the conversations I'm having with young people these days, uh, you know, and they're older, they're about to embark on you know, finish their A levels and about to embark on you know, on HE or FE or apprenticeship. And they all say, but you adults, you just, we look at you and you lecture us and you tell us we've got to look after our mental health, but actually you're sorted. So they look at us because I think, and again, you know, I, I, I lately I've been paying a lot of attention to that and actually allowing myself to be much more vulnerable. So um, in one of the podcasts I've just shared my most guarded secret which is that you know my real way of coping was sugar and so that's what I did and I used to do that quite secretive secretively until I started working with someone um and you know I've noticed that I'm becoming much more honest with my children about what's going on for me and um you know without burdening them with you know I don't want to share all my problems yeah. because they're children but I think it's like that. Do you think it's important for parents also and for adults, you know, like teachers to, to show those emotions? Because I, I don't know, there's, I get a sense that possibly we've become too professional um, in our behaviors with young people, forgetting that actually they're looking up to us as, as beacon of light and sort of like guidance. Mm -hmm. No, I would agree with that. And I would agree with what you're saying about sharing at an appropriate level, depending on the age of the children. I think certainly my experience with primary age children is they are a lot more accepting and a lot more aware of things than you give them credit for. So even, even if they, you know, don't know what's happening they can certainly pick up that something is not quite right either with their teacher or at home and I think certainly as a primary school teacher you have them all week and so they're, they're you're very attached to them they're very attached to you I think there is a, a definite level of appropriateness like you say you don't want to be 
using them as your therapists or you know on but certainly to be open about you know challenges that you faced and things that are difficult and you know it, it, it's even things like I'm, I'm trying to think so I did a, um I still do some supply teaching because I work in schools so if teachers are off I'll just go and do the odd day where I cover a class. I remember there was a little boy a year or two ago who was really struggling with a maths problem and he's like I can't do this I'm not good at this I'm really frustrated and so we had a whole conversation about being frustrated when you get stuck on something and I was able to say to him oh you know what I'm having frustrations at the minute in in this I can't remember what it was, it was something about building the website, which was doing my head in. <laughs> just could not figure it out. And I said, it's really frustrating when you can't do something. He's like, it is, it's really, so we had this whole conversation. And I think he was like, oh, so you feel that way as well? And I was like, yes, <laughs> adults feel that way too. And to me, that's a, that's a really healthy conversation to be having, because frustration mm -hmm. is a really normal part of learning. Learning is not this smoothie process that everybody thinks that there should be frustration um, and it is an opportunity for resilience. But I think bringing something of ourselves into that is, is really important. I think we often have this sort of teacher mask that we put on yeah. that when we go into the classroom and, and sometimes you need that. Sometimes you've got things happening that you, you do need to do your job still. But I think certainly being able to share challenges that you've had and difficulties that you've had. Um, I was just listening to the um, World Economic Forum, there's a panel all about workplace mental health. And Deloitte, uh, there was the head of diversity and inclusion from Deloitte and she was talking about a survey they had done where they said a lot of millennials and Gen Z, and they said, well, you know, 50, about half of them said, stress is a valid reason to take a day off work to protect their mental health. But most of them, if they'd taken a day off work to protect their mental health, they hadn't told work that was the reason. They'd given another reason. So wow. I think that stigma around being proactive around our own mental health and protecting our own well-being is still there. It's still there. And you don't want to be judged or seen as weak. And I think that's people kind of have that 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 concern. I mean, I've had sessions with a psychologist before. And it was so helpful for me um, and talking to friends who've been through similar things with counsellors or psychologists. And, you know, we've all said, ah, oh, just, this is such a good resource. <laughs> things are tough. You've got to figure things yeah, out. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, it's yeah. such a good resource. And it's, I think more of us need to be open about that and say, this is just a normal part of life. And sometimes life is really hard. Sometimes things happen, which are very difficult. And you're not just, it's not, expected that you struggle through on your own no. you know, you've, got options. you've got options out there but it's completely fine to take those options and to take the support offered but again maybe that's a cultural thing I think being yes. British you know it's definitely that oh stiff up a lip and just you know keep on going yeah brush under the carpet and hope yes, exactly. it <laughs> just squash it all down squash it all right down ignore it all it'll all go away eventually of course it doesn't go away does it it's oh, and make a cup of tea <laughs> then... I, I don't actually drink tea so i don't have that coping strategy at my disposal sadly <laughs> so for me it's trained professionals all the way <laughs> Exactly, and it's so really funny because I notice it in my in my uh, my my husband. His way of dealing with his emotions is he just puts the kettle on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> like you said, we all have our own ways of dealing with them. I'd rather the kettle than the bottle of wine, to be honest. Right, <laughs> that's <they're> definitely <laughs> self-medicating with alcohol, for sure. But yeah, I think just being vulnerable, is it's frightening to do. Being up to people, it's frightening to do. But I have to say that when I've done it, I've never ever had anything less than a completely supportive response. Yeah. I've never had somebody say, "Well, that's pathetic. Like, get on with it." Sort no. of stuff. No. I think internal voices no. can be so critical. We can be so critical yes. of ourselves, or actually never getting that reaction from friends. And so part of that is that real self-compassion isn't it and looking after ourselves and being kind to ourselves and thinking oh, okay so if this was a friend <laughs> what would I be doing how would I be approaching this I think that's really really important as well yeah amazing and so you know we you've said about like the positive psychology I often say that a lot of the students when they come to me they just expect to be like at the top of the wave always surfing happy you know wonderful it's amazing um and then when they get to the bottom they just you know it, it's the you know, the the way of life the up and down of life like that um and again you know that may possibly because of social media and other things is is heightened because you just see the highlight reels of of everybody else is having such an amazing time um you know what would I mean, do you see that in, in younger people as well? That sort of like the, we were talking about life is challenging. For me, it's like life, like the same with learning. We expect Ofsted of, expects children to just show this sort of really lovely, you know, ongoing like that, linear growth. And, you know, being a teacher of languages, learning a language, you just go, you know, up and then plateau and up and plateau and, uh, and things like that. And it's just, it, it, it's squiggly it's not straightforward so would you do you see that also in your work i'd say not so much with younger children i wouldn't say there's that expectation of i have to be happy all the time but there's certainly discomfort around those more challenging emotions and not really being quite sure how to deal with them so maybe that then evolves into you know teenage years and when social media gets involved but I think as well as there's a flip side of that coin, right, is that there are a lot of influencers who are now starting to be very open about mental health challenges and mental health issues. And I think that's brilliant. Like, what an amazing platform. Yes. Just yes. to say, you know what, everything's not perfect. And my life no. isn't, yes, it looks all shiny, but you, like you say, you're getting that edited highlight reel. So yeah, certainly we, I don't see the expectation that life should be perfect and everything should be wonderful. Um, it's certainly more along the lines of I feel bad and I don't like feeling bad and I want to feel better mm. and how do I how you know how do we do that in a way that's not contrived and not forcing this artificial positive feeling but instead allowing people to actually sit with their feelings and work through those feelings and teaching them how to do that for themselves yes and so if a listener sort of listening to that going right I quite like the sound of that and I'd like to do something with my children mm. are there best ways of approaching this with with our children or with ourselves because you know 
sometimes there's some emotions that I don't really want to sit with and I, I just sort of tend to just push away and or we might you know when it happens I know it's not the right moment for me to explore that emotion so I park it and then I might take it you know to to my friend because we do sort of co-coaching sessions or I might do it in my journaling what would you advise um, parents or you know to, for themselves or, or for their young people I think again we're back to context aren't we and that's really key so it's really hard to say this is one thing that everybody should, I mean I, I do say that I do talk about sitting with feelings and working through feelings and then when I'm starting to work with parents on workshops or through coaching what we discover is oh but there's challenges to that and there are things that get in the way that are specific to families and specific to children so I would say my first recommendation would always be come and speak to me <laughs> come and have a chat I, I do work with a lot of parents and a lot of, of students on this um but I think there's journaling again you brought that up that's a really powerful way to actually deal with it and I also think as well, although some, sometimes it's a bit of a time constraint, some really interesting books out there. There's some very, very helpful reading. So Daniel Segal in, in particular, he has written some really practical, very easy to understand books, um, Whole Brain Child. Mm -hmm. And there's another one, I can't remember, I'll get the title to you so you can share it on the, um, on the podcast. Certainly around cultivating resilience and empathy and it's all to do with the way children's brains work and how you as a parent can actually understand that and think about the strategies that you're going to use that work in harmony with brain development rather than, you know, clashing up against that. So I think that's, and they're, they're quite short as well. And despite the fact that he's a neuropsychologist, very accessible, really, he really breaks it down into ways that are very easy, even for children of about five or six to understand. Mm -hmm. So parents should definitely be okay. <laughs> Amazing. Well, fabulous. I um yeah, if you give me those those um uh, books, then I'll put them at the bottom of the of the uh, podcast. Yeah, so. I will do. I will. I'm not on commission. Maybe I should get in touch with them. Oh, yeah, I think you should. <laughs> Maybe I should be like, hang on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and also we'll, we'll put your details so people can contact you and, as well and work with you. That would be also really good. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot, uh, you know, a, a lot about sort of emotions and resilience and things that we, we can do. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you and that you think we've, we haven't discussed in this conversation that's really important? Yeah, do you know what? what just one last thing. This definition of resilience, we often think of it as bouncing back and just getting back to normal after challenges. And... I'm constantly reading about this and adapting my practice depending on recent research because it does, it does change all the time, particularly when it comes to brain research. And I read something recently in preparing for a workshop with a client that really struck me, which was there are some things that we don't bounce back from when you know, there's a bereavement or when we're dealing with chronic illness or you know, even sometimes like losing, losing a friend, like a friendship falling apart we don't always just bounce back. And so this author was talking about moving through challenges with courage and with compassion 
so that we have a new sense of ourselves when we come out of the other side. And for me, I was like, wow, that's, that's such a good way of looking at it. Because when huge things happen and huge things go wrong, they do fundamentally change who you are. Mm. And there is no going back to the way things were before, but you engage in that courage and compassion on moving forwards and actually thinking about, okay, so how do I piece things back together and how do I learn from this and how do I move forward is, I think, a more helpful way of looking at it and avoids getting trapped in that cycle of toxic positivity where you're like, I just have to be positive and it'll all be all right. Um, because actually, if, if someone that you love has died or if you've lost a close friendship, that's not, you can't just put a positive spin on that. You need time to work through those feelings and your life won't be the same. So sorry, sorry to end on a bit of a depressing note. No, no, I, no, I love it. It's really important. Yes. Oh, I so agree with you. And, you know, for me, like resilience is this notion that like a, like a material where you would just re return back to it, to its normal shape and form. Um, yeah. And yet, you know, I love what you said because it resonates so much, you know, on, from my own personal experience is we constantly changing. Change mm -hmm. is the only constant. And, you know, when, when challenging events happen, we change even more and we we become somebody else and you know it's that it's acknowledging that in a way also possibly teaching our children that you know i often say that to, to my boys you know change is the only constant and yeah to like you say, we, we think of resilience as ourselves like an elastic band where we stretch and then we ping back into the same position. But we're really much more like blue tack where it's stretched and actually it's kind of completely different shape. So we can keep <laughs> it or we can squish it back and rearrange it the way we want it. So I think that's it's helpful to actually to think about that. Um, yeah. You know, and there's always that thought, isn't it, that diamonds are formed under pressure. Yes. Yes that I work with and that I know have said to me actually you know what the biggest lessons we've learned the biggest growth that I've experienced has always been through adversity it's always been through challenge didn't like it at the time wasn't comfortable at the time didn't enjoy it at all but looking back is when you appreciate the lessons that you've got from it and how it has shaped you as a person I think there's a lot of benefit in that we shouldn't always be trying to go back to where we were before because you know Yes. Oh, that, that I so love that because I always draw this to my to my students, and I just say, you know, you want to be at the top of the wave, but remember that actually, I don't know about you, but think back about your experiences. Is when I had I experienced adversity and challenges that I questioned myself, that I I you know that I just looked at things differently because when things are going well we just go with the flow it's hunky-dory and we don't question ourselves we just accept what is um and you've you've said that so beautifully so thank you <laughs> <laughs> I think as well it's, it's worth it bears it it's worth bearing in mind that it's only when you've had the bad things that you really appreciate the good stuff as yes. well so yes. having those challenges, and it's very much a part of being human. Nobody gets through life unscathed, right? Nobody just skips through on top of the wave, on top of that graph the whole time. Mm -hmm. But when things have really been awful, that's when, when it's positive, when things are going well, 
that's when you think like your positive psychology comes into play things like gratitude and you think oh really? <laughs> this is something I can really appreciate given the challenges that I've faced before yeah amazing oh Sarah I could speak hours so thank you let's just carry on um so before we finish what well, I always ask uh, my you know the, the guests if um they have one thing they want to one last thing they want to share with us so if that's the case with you what would it be I think just a reminder that life is not positive and nor should it be there's positive moments there's negative moments but words of wise words sorry wise words from my mom is that nothing lasts forever not the good times and not the bad times so we need to remember that these things are temporary, but it's how we get through them that makes a difference. Amazing. I love that. Thank oh, you so thank much, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I love mums. They always have good advice. <laughs> <laughs> they do, but they lots of wise words. <laughs> thank you so much. And um, I am very grateful. Yeah, it's been lovely to chat. Yes. Well, maybe we can do another one. Um, some okay, some next other time. Week. Next week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. That's good. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day and your weekend. Me too. Bye. flourishing.